Well, welcome to Seacoast. My name is Josh Walters, and I'm the campus pastor here at the Mount Pleasant campus, one of the teaching pastors here at Seacoast. So glad that you're here to join us this weekend. I want to welcome you if you're joining us online or in one of the venues at an off-site campus, wherever you happen to be, we are glad that you are here as well. Listen, I got a question for you as we get started. How many of you are excited about Thanksgiving? Let me hear a little bit. Come on. So good. I'm telling you, it's the only holiday that I travel with Tupperware, if you know what I'm saying, and I cannot wait. I had lunch this past week with our Somerville campus pastor, and as we were trying to decide where we go uh, to meet, he said, hey, do you want something real good or real healthy? And I know some of you would say that you could do both of those things, but I have yet to be convinced. And so I said, if we're going to drive all this way, let's get something real good. And so we may or may not have met at the Chinese buffet by the Tanger Outlets, and uh, we may or may not have seen the entire Dream Center staff there at the same time. So I'm just saying... We're people that like to eat good, and that happens to be my family motto, I think, for, uh, for Thanksgiving. Man, we do crock-pot macaroni and cheese, sweet potato casserole, green beans, biscuits, all kind of muffins. Then we get to dessert. We've got pecan pie, pumpkin pie, nana pudding. Come on, somebody. We're going to go straight into response time. Thank you, Lord, for this offer. <laughs> no, I cannot wait. One of the things that I've grown to love that's part of our Thanksgiving tradition now is Black Friday shopping. How many of you take part in the Black Friday craziness? So it used to be that you had to wait until Friday to shop on Black Friday, but now it starts on Thursday. And so just about the time we finish up eating and, and I pack up our Tupperware, tell the kids to go hide it in the car, we get them all settled, and Katie and I pull out all the, the newspaper, the coupons, we've got our list all mapped out, friends, kids, family members, and about 9 or 10 o'clock we head out. And our approach for Black Friday uh, is that we are all in, meaning that we're not coming home until the sun comes up and we have knocked out this entire list. And we don't do any of this stuff like if Katie's going in Michael's, the craft store, we don't do any of this like, hey, babe, I'm going to sit in the car and look through the coupons and look at our, our next store because that's code word for I'm going to nap for a few minutes. You go inside. So we don't do that. We both go in every store together, but we decide up front that, man, we are all in for whatever this deal looks like. Have you ever heard that phrase before, all in? It can be challenging, especially on Black Friday shopping, to be all in with your woman. Maybe you've heard it in applying for a, a job before. You're reading the position profile, and it says something like, employee must uh, be part of creating an all-in culture. It's like, what does that mean? It essentially means that you're going to do your absolute best, work as hard as you can, do whatever it takes, whenever it takes, uh, for the best of the organization. If you're walking in one day and there's trash on the ground, it doesn't matter that you aren't on the facilities team or the grounds team. You're going to pick it up because you're all in. You're going to help the organization look and be the best it could possibly be. Maybe you've, you've felt that tension of being all in in a relationship. It's part of what makes a guy finally popping the question so exciting because it's the moment where he finds out, is she really all in? You know, it can be challenging for us, whether it's uh, something like shopping or work relationships. It can be challenging for us to really be all in. And the same is true in our relationship with God. Maybe there's some things that you've been praying about for a long time and you just don't see them unfolding how you hoped that they would. Maybe there's some areas that God has called you to obedience in, and you know that blessing follows obedience. So you've been saying, yes, Lord, yes, Lord, for a while now, and you're just not experiencing the blessing that you hoped would come. Maybe you've been seeking God in your quiet time, every single day, been spending time with him. But man, you feel like it's been days or weeks or, 
or months since you've really heard from him. And now it's a challenge for you to really be all in, to keep walking that road. Well, you know, the, the good news for us today is that that's part of being human. Uh, the struggle to really be all in with him isn't one that's new to us. It's, it's one that uh, men and women of God have struggled with for thousands of years. And today we're going to look at a story in 1 Kings chapter 18 when God would send a man, a prophet named Elijah, to appeal to his people, the nation of Israel, and call them out of living lives of, of um, compromised convictions, lives where they looked a lot more like the world that they lived in than the God that they worshipped, and he would call them back to the life that God had in mind for them, one where they were all in. For the last few weeks, we've been in a series called Poets, Prophets, and Kings, and part of what has been unique to it is that this past year, we went to Israel, and while we were there, we picked out a couple of these stories, and we got to visit the location where the story actually took place, and so I'm excited about today because I'm going to be team teaching the message with Pastor Josh Surratt. He actually introduced this story on location in Israel, so he's going to intro it, kind of give us a glimpse of what the call is from Prophet Elijah, what does it look like for us to really go all in with him. But before we join up with him, why don't you join me? Let's pray for just a minute and we'll get started. God, we thank you so much for your faithfulness in loving us and pursuing us. God, in the midst of our sin and our compromised convictions, God, in the seasons of life where we just, we look a lot more like the world. God, you are faithful in pursuing us, forgiving us, loving us, and inviting us back to the life that you had in mind for us, the life that you sent your son to die for. So God, we give you this time today. Just pray that you would open our hearts and our minds that we might hear you and encounter you and come away changed. So we give you this time in Jesus' name. Amen. I can remember the first fight that I ever got in. In fact, to my recollection, it's the only fight that I've ever been in. I was fourth grade and my friend, or should I say my former friend, Aaron, had some unkind things to say about my mom. And I said, all right, dude, it's on. Meet me after school we're gonna fight. I mean, I'm talking old school uh, playground brawl. And as the day went on, more and more people began to hear about this fight. By the time we got out there, there was a crowd of our friends, fourth grade friends that were taking sides and hedging bets. And if anybody did bet on me that day, chances are they didn't get paid very well. But it didn't matter, win or lose, I was gonna defend my family and defend my mom. You know, I'm standing here right now on top of a mountain in Israel, and uh, we're, we're overlooking the Jezreel Valley, and just on the other side of this valley is a mountain that's called Mount Carmel. And if you have read your Bibles or remember an Old Testament story, this is the scene of one of the most epic, if not the most epic fights that ever happened. It was a battle between a guy named Elijah and a king named Ahab. Now, King Ahab was the seventh king of Israel, and the Bible says about King Ahab that he did more evil in the sight of the Lord than any other king before him. And I don't think that was ever his intention. And Elijah was a prophet of God, and his role was to speak the truth, to, to bring truth to the king of the day. And it bothered Elijah, and so what, what had happened is three years before this epic fight, Elijah tried to confront Ahab, he wouldn't go, and so God brought a drought upon this land that had lasted for three and a half Years. And if you know anything about Israel, when as we've spent time here, you know that the livelihood of this country is two things. It's rain, so that their crops can grow, it's a farming community, and also fertility, I mean, so that they, they can grow as a nation. And, and so what had happened is Ahab still worshiped the God of Israel, but he had led his, um, his, his nation to begin worshiping other gods, two gods to be specific, the God of Baal, uh, which was the pagan God of rain, and the God of Asherah, which was the pagan God of fertility. 
And so I believe one of the reasons, there are several of them, but one of them, one of the reasons that, that Ahab struggled as a leader is because he failed to worship the one and true God alone. Uh, he hedged his bets. He said, we'll worship God, but we're also going to worship other people. And so Elijah decided, you know what, I'm going to call you out on this. And so he comes back and, and, and he finds Ahab and he, he lays the, the groundwork for this battle. He says, it's, it's, it's the God of Israel against the God of Baal. Let's see who the true God is. We'll let the prophets of Baal build their idol and then I'll build mine and, and we're going to call down, we're going to pray to our God that he would send fire down onto the, the, the uh, altar and whoever sends fire is the true God. And so, so he lays it out. But look what, um, look what Elijah says in verse, it's 1 Kings 18, if you guys have your Bibles, uh, and, and verse 21 says that Elijah came near to all the people and he said, how long will you go limping between differing opinions. If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And it says the people did not answer him a word. I wonder why they didn't answer him. I think it's because they didn't know what to say because they were, they, they were worshiping God, but they were also worshiping these false gods. And Elijah says, when you do that, you're literally limping. There's no power in that. There's, there's no power because you're not putting your full trust in the God of Israel. And so they set up their altars and Elijah wanted to give the, the, the gods of Baal home, home field advantage. He let them go first. And he said, y'all go ahead, build your altar and, and let's see what happens. And they began to pray at about nine o'clock in the morning that their God, the God of Baal would send fire on the altar and nothing happened. They prayed and they danced and they chanted and they sang and it came about noon. And this is why I love Elijah because he's a lot like a Surat. He began to talk trash says that at noon, Elijah mocked them saying, cry aloud for he is a God. Either he is musing or maybe he's relieving himself or he's on a journey or maybe he's asleep and he must be awakened. And it says that they even prayed harder. They began to cry aloud and they began to cut themselves and they were doing anything that they could possibly do to get their God to move. And at the end of the day, about three o'clock, nothing happens. Their God was silent, no fire. And so then Elijah builds his altar. And he does it according to biblical uh, principles. He builds it with 12 stones, which represented the 12 tribes of Israel. It's interesting because at this point in history, the nation of Israel was divided into two nations. You had the nation of Judah and the nation of Israel. But, but Elijah knew that God's will spiritually was that 12 tribes of Israel would be united. And so he builds this altar. And then he does something strange, especially in a drought. He, he calls for a jug of water and he pours not one, not two, but 12 jugs of water. He drenches this altar with water. It's a drought, so he's wasting valuable water, but then he's also almost putting his God at a disadvantage. I mean, how are you gonna light a fire to a, an altar that's soaking wet? And after getting all of his preparations done, he prays a simple prayer. He doesn't dance, he doesn't chant, he doesn't cut himself. He simply says this in verse uh, 36. He says, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant, and that I, have, that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. A simple prayer, essentially saying, God, I know who you are. Will you show these people who you are? And at that moment, fire comes from heaven and engulfs the altar, dries up all the water, and a, a, one of the most incredible miracles that's ever happened. And it says at that moment, when, when God showed himself to be true, at that moment it says the people fell on their faces and they said, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. See, this is a people who 
had hedged their bets. They were, they were worshiping God, but they were also worshiping Baal and Asherah. And remember what Elijah said, there's no power in that. And they just had a front row seat to the power of the living God. And it brought them to their needs. You know, it's interesting. I, I wonder about this story. What does it have to do with us? You know, not many of us are worshiping wooden idols that represent uh, different things. Most of us would say that that's not where we live. But, but the reality is, is idolatry is when we, when we put anything in the place of God, when we expect anything out of anybody or anything that only God can give us. Things like validation, provision, protection, our, our security and who we are, our identity. When we, when we draw those things from anything other than God, we are participating in the same idolatry that this nation was participating in many thousands of years ago. And, and, and I think it's interesting because when we do that, we often find, ourself, find ourselves much like they did, limping along, you know, going from one person to the next to find our security, to find our identity. And I would pose the same question to me and to all of us today that Elijah posed, how long are we gonna go between the two? How long are we gonna straddle the fence? You know, the story ends in a kind of an interesting way. After um, the fire comes and the people recognize what's going on, Elijah takes the 450 prophets of Baal, he takes them down into this valley and he kills them all in a day. Now that may sound very harsh and, and brutal, but the reality is when we're dealing with idolatry, there's no act too extreme to, to rid ourselves of that idol. There's nothing we can do that would be too extreme. If there's something that's, that's captured your heart above the Lord, that's, that's, that's giving your identity above the Lord, there's nothing too extreme that, that we could do to, to rid ourselves of that idol. And so I would pose that same question. Where are you with that? You know, where are we? Are, are we like Ahab? I don't think Ahab ever set out to be the, the, the wicked king. I don't think he ever set out to do more evil in the eyes of the Lord than anybody else. But he allowed his heart to drift and he allowed himself to put more trust and confidence in some God of Baal than he did the God of Israel. Where are you on that today? Is there anything that's got your heart? Anything that maybe has taken a position that's maybe a good thing. Most of us aren't struggling with black tar heroin. It's usually good things. It's, it's finances. Maybe it's even family. It's stuff that, that we allow. Maybe even the Chicago Cubs winning the World Series. Good things that are gonna happen, but they should never take the place of God in our lives. Let's not be a people who straddles a fence. Let's be a people who goes all in and surrenders to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, just to give you a little perspective on, on what Pastor Josh shared, the Old Testament is full of incredible prophets. I think about the prophet Isaiah, for example. The majority of his book is written uh, talking about the coming king, the birth of Jesus, but it was written 700 years before Jesus was actually born. And so when Pastor Josh says good things that are going to happen, like the Cubs winning the World Series, even the best of prophets had a 700-year window to work in. So as a church, I think we can celebrate him trying to use that prophetic gift and just rally behind it. But yeah, it's probably going to happen in 700 years. <laughs> so I encourage him in that. Oftentimes when I hear stories like that, I try to find myself in the story. To say, which, which one of these crowds would I be, would I be uh, hanging out with? And in this story in particular, I see three different crowds of people. The first of which is the prophet Elijah. He represents the man of God that is all in. He is sold out, committed to saying whatever God says say, doing whatever God says do, going wherever God says go. Just a few chapters before this, in chapter 17, God had told him, I want you to go hide in this valley. You're going to drink water from the brook, and I've instructed the ravens to feed you. 
so I see him going down there, getting water from the brook, these ravens coming in. So I did a little Google search this week on how do ravens carry food. And some, some birds are like big dogs. You know, they swoop in and could grab up a squirrel with their feet and like drop it to its death. I thought that would be kind of cool. Uh, but that ain't how the raven does it. The raven scoops down and gets the food in his mouth. And so you think about Elijah being all in. These ravens are swooping in, you know, <laughs> spitting their food. I don't even like it when people take a bite of food off of my fork. You know what I mean? It's like mashed potatoes or something. They pull it out, and there's a little remnant of stuff left on the fork. It's like, God, it's, it's gross, man. Or like an ice cream cone. You know what I'm talking about? Hey, can I taste that? And they leave a whole impression of that awkward bite lick thing. Just have it. Just have it. You could take it, you know? Imagine ravens swooping. Ah! You know, Elijah's like, thanks, thank you. Yeah. All in. Yes, Lord. That was the only response he had. I picture him now in this story, standing one against 450 prophets of Baal. Incredible faith, boldness, courage. I've seen glimpses of that in my life. There's been moments where, where I've had great faith. But overall, I don't, I don't see myself in that group necessarily. I don't see God in heaven saying, Jesus, Holy Spirit, y'all come here for just a minute. Got to think about who we should send to the 450 prophets of Baal. Should it be Elijah or Walters? You know, <laughs> like, that just didn't happen. I'm just, not, I'm just not in that group. Other group I see is the 450 prophets of Baal. These guys were intense. The verse that Pastor Josh shared was that it was their tradition to, to cut themselves with swords and spears, to make blood flow as they cried out to their false gods. How many of you know you don't get a scratch with a sword? You know, like, those are some big gashes, some nasty wounds. If I were to send out an email to our church, hey, gang, I want to have a call for prayer, excited about what I believe God's going to do on your way in today. I want you to stop by the info center and grab a sword and a spear. We're going to go after God. You know? <laughs> Ain't nobody got time for that. People might log in online to see what's going to happen. You know? <laughs> but nobody's going to come. It's just what, those are intense dudes going after false guy. I'm definitely not in that group. But then there are the crowds, people from all over the nation of Israel that Elijah had told Ahab to, to gather, to meet him on the mountain. These are the very people that God sent Elijah to speak to, men and women of compromised convictions. For the last 22 years under King Ahab's reign, they had been worshiping the God of Baal. They were a people who once knew the worship of the one true God, but now they were a people who were, who were divided. They looked a lot more like the world that they lived in than the God that they worshiped. Now, if I'm being honest, these are probably the people that I, I identify with the most. And so if I were to receive, try to receive personally Elijah's word to them, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? How long will you go limping between two different gods? The imagery he's using there is literally as that of a person taking up crutches, limping around, living a life that's powerless, not at all the life that God had in mind for them. If I was to receive that, if you're anything like me and you were to try to apply this word to your life, to receive it from the prophet Elijah, what would it look like for us to really go all in with him? A couple thoughts for us there on your outline. The first of which is that we have to be willing to speak into the silence. Speak into the silence. Verse 21 that Pastor Josh shared after the prophet Elijah asked them, how long are you going to go wavering between two different opinions? Scripture tells us, there that, and the people did not answer him a word. Some translations say, and the people remained completely silent. Didn't say a thing. 
I can't help but wonder what was going on inside of them. See, the the God of of Baal served as a local functional deity. As you saw there in the background of Pastor Josh's video, this is a farming community, a people dependent entirely on rain. So in addition to the worship of the one true God, they would go and worship this God of Baal, asking, praying that he would bring about rain to grow their crops, to sustain their livelihood. So they had a place that they could go worship the one true God on Sunday, and then a temple that King Ahab built where they could go and worship the God of Baal. So what does this look like in our lives? You don't come here on Sunday to any one of our campuses and then have somewhere else that you go to worship another God on Monday. For us, I think it's a much more gradual issue. No no guy wakes up, for example, and says, you know what, babe? I think I'm going to start worshiping work today. You know, It just didn't happen. But slowly over time, this thing that God has, has given to you to bring about provision for your family, to allow you to make a contribution. It's a good thing. But over time, man, your gifts are being used. You're being affirmed and celebrated. You're being successful. There's a sense of responsibility and accomplishment and worth and value that's coming from it. And slowly over time, man, this thing has creeped up to become an idol in your life, and you didn't even realize it. I can only imagine the prophet Elijah showing up to me in that issue, for example, saying, Josh, how long are you going to go on powerless, limping between two gods, both God and work? You know, if that was the case in my life, I probably would stand there silent too, just because I didn't see it. It had been a slow, gradual thing. You know, maybe if, if I was to do a Facebook search on words that I used most often and saw that work always came up, you know, or looked at my calendar and, and my conversations with my wife and saw, man, I give all of my time to this. It's what I'm always talking about. I guess maybe it's true. And I didn't even see it. That we would stand there silent as well, just dumbfounded. Could it be? Could it be true? Well, speaking in to the silence is all about searching our hearts, searching our minds to see, is there anything that's competing with my affection for or devotion to God? And then calling it for what it is. See, until we're willing to label it, until we're willing to to call it a false god, until we're willing to call it an idol, we're powerless to do anything about it. And until we own it, it is going to slowly own us. So we've got to speak in to the, to the silence, put some language to those things so that we can do something about it. Second thing we've got to do there in your outline is burn the ships. Burn the ships. My freshman year of high school, I um, scored into a program for smart kids where we would take two math classes and two science classes per year of high school and graduate as a genius and go off to do, like, awesome things. And so uh, about midway through my freshman year, both myself and my parents and my teachers realized that there had been an awful mistake (laughs) and that either someone had misread my test scores or there was some other poor Josh in remedial classes uh, and and we needed to switch some places. And so... I would go on to take uh, my my sophomore, junior, and senior year, go on to take over those four classes that I didn't pass my freshman year and go off to college to never take another math or science class again. It just wasn't for me. But in that time, I realized that I loved history. And what I loved about history is there's no formulas, no variables, no long division, you know. It's just this endless timeline with thousands of stories. And and you could learn those stories, write papers about them, and call yourself a history major. I was like, I can do that. I could be excited about that. 
Well, as I studied history, this phrase, burn the ships, is one that, that has come up several times. It was mentioned by Alexander the Great, and it was said also in 1519 by a rough dude named Captain Hernan Cortez. Uh, he wanted to conquer Mexico. And what was unique about it is that he had several hundred men that were poorly trained, poorly equipped, didn't have near the supplies they needed. And Mexico hadn't been conquered for 600 years. And, and many had attempted that were much more prepared and equipped than he was. Knowing that, he tried a different approach. And he landed on the beach of the Mayans. And as they headed inland, uh, he would turn back to his men and tell them to burn the ships. Uh, meaning that we are going to either ensure victory or die trying, but retreat is not an option for us. And they would go on to be the first men to conquer Mexico in over, over 600 years. And that's exactly what we see Elijah do here in this story. If you could imagine the contrast uh, of the people, in one moment, at the beginning of the day, they were silent. How long will you go on limping between two gods? Then they see fire from heaven, consume the offering, and the people of Israel in once proclaiming, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Scripture tells us at once, this was Elijah's response in verse 40, seize the prophets of Baal. Don't let anyone get away. They seized them, and Elijah had them brought down to the Kishon Valley and slaughtered there. See, Elijah knew that unless he was to rid the earth of these prophets, unless he was to burn the ships, the temptation for them to return and worship them later was going to be too great. And the same is true in our lives. See, all too often we try to manage or flirt with sin that God would desire us to flee from. There's an aspect of sin that, that feels good to us. And so without ever saying it, we think, well, how close can I get to this? How much of this can I have and still be true to my worship of the one true God? When the reality is there are things in our lives that God wants us to just burn the ships, rid our lives of. So practically, what does that look like? Maybe it's an area of disobedience. You might be in a relationship and you've, you've been praying for years now that God would bring about a smoking hot, godly woman and he's finally done it. And you are thankful and you just so happen to be a relatively handsome dude yourself. And when the two of you get together, you're following God and you want to be pure, but man, your boundaries just are not working. You've said, we're not going to be in a dark room together. We're not going to French. You've tried everything that you can think of, but when you get together, man, purity is not the result. And so you've got one of two options. You ask yourself, God, is he the one? Is she the one? And if so, you get married quickly, you know? But if not, you burn the ships. Maybe a great guy, maybe a great girl, but maybe not a great situation for you to be in. If you're not going to be able to be together and honor God in the relationship, then it's best for both of you to just rid your life of one another so that you can seek him. So maybe it's an area of disobedience. It could be an area of compromise. Maybe it's, it's not a bad thing. It's just not good for you right now. I think social media is a good example of this. Maybe every time you open up Instagram or Facebook, you can't help but, but be jealous or struggle with envy over somebody else's highlight reel, and it's blinded you to how much God has really blessed you, how much you have to be thankful for. You're constantly feeling down on yourself. Maybe the best thing that you could do is not go and delete your account, but just delete the app off your phone for a while. Say, God, I'm gonna give you this week. Give me some new patterns. All the time in my idle moments when I open up Instagram, let me turn to you. Let me be filled up by you. Burn the ship just for a season so that you can seek after him. What about, what if it's a good thing though? It's not an area of disobedience. It's not an area of compromise. What if it's just an area of drift? 
Pastor Josh talked about this. Maybe it's something great like your family or, or finances or, or a position at the office. You're not going to go into your boss and say, you know what, I've, I've idolized my job, and so I'm out, you know, because you're going to be hungry and have bills to pay the next day. It just doesn't work like that. So what do you do? If you've slowly given value to an area that has become an idol in your life, I mean, you pull in your, your spouse, call a few friends, speak into the silence, call it for what it is. It's because I need y'all to hold me accountable in this area. Man, I've, I've idolized, I've overvalued, I'm finding my identity in this, and I cannot do that anymore. You can't burn the ship. It's a needed good thing in your life, but you've got to put God in the right place. So if we're going to be all in with him, we've got to speak into the silence. We've got to burn the ships. And number three, there on the back of your outline, we have to be willing to stand alone. Be willing to stand alone. After uh, the prophet Elijah comes to the people and he asks them, how long are you going to go limping between two gods? There in verse 22, he says, I am the only one of the Lord's prophets left. After slaying the 450 prophets of Baal, King Ahab goes home to his wife Jezebel that day. He says, baby, you ain't never going to believe what happened today. Elijah slaughtered all of our prophets, at which she sends word to Elijah. May God deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow your life is not like one of them. So Elijah takes off into the wilderness, terrified, just scared for his life. And, and God meets him there on the run in the wilderness to say, Elijah, what are you doing? I want you to turn back the way that you came. I still have work for you to do. There's two men that I want you to appoint as kings over various nations. And by the way, there in verse 18, there on your outline, yet I reserve 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed down to Baal, whose mouths have not kissed him. See, for Elijah, the, the feeling of being alone was very real, but it was just that. It was a feeling. It was not the reality that he lived in. One, because God had set aside 7,000 people, an army of men and women devoted to the, the worship of the one true God, but also because of Deuteronomy 31.6 there on your outline. Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or terrified because of them. For the Lord your God goes with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. God was with him the whole time. He had to remind him, though you feel alone, you are not alone. When was the last time in your life that maybe it was an area of obedience that God was calling you to, a tough truth that you had to share, a sin that you had to confess, something random that you just knew God was telling you you had to do, but when you did, it was going to feel like you put yourself out there. You were going to feel like you were standing alone. I mean, those places are very real. Uh, we, we could feel vulnerable, we can feel weak, but if we're going to walk in obedience to God, they're going to be a, a present reality in our faith. But as I think back over countless stories in Scripture, epic stories of our mothers and fathers of our faith, I'm thinking, man, where would we be without those moments? I'm reminded of men like Moses. God told him, I want you to go to Pharaoh. Tell him to let my people go. You can, you can imagine how he must have felt. I'm reminded of David. We talked about him just a couple weeks ago. Imagine two armies on opposing mountains looking at these two men down in a valley. He was surrounded by people, but he had to feel all alone. I'm reminded of Esther. God gave her favor with the king that she could put her life on the line to say for a time such as this that the people of God might be saved. A teenager named Mary, visited by an angel, told that she would be with child. 
that she would give birth to a son, that his name would be Jesus. A guy, Peter, on a boat with the disciples that sees Jesus walking out on the water. Peter says, Jesus, if it's really you, call me to walk out to you, to step out of the boat all alone. Man, it's in those moments where we step out alone that we can feel weak and vulnerable. But the good news for us is, man, the end of our strength is just the beginning of his. Scripture tells us that in our weakness, his power is made perfect. I can't help but wonder if there's an area of your life that maybe a spouse or a friend or a circumstance has been trying to point out to you for some time, and things are just a little out of balance here. And I wonder if the way that you were to respond to that area today would determine what it looks like three months from now or, or six months from now. See, I'm not convinced that any one message could change your life, but I am totally convinced that one decision can. And for many of you today, as we talk about being all in with God, you're going to do that for the very first time. Maybe your story is a lot like mine. I grew up in church, knew a lot about God, but there was a day where I knew he was inviting me into a relationship with him to go all in for the very first time. What's unique to going all in with him is that it's not just a decision that you make one time, though. Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. So for some of you, you might be going all in for the hundredth time. What does that look like? It means that we've got to speak into the silence. We've got to search our hearts. Are there any competing affections in our lives, things that, that we've given ourselves to, that we're valuing above our relationship with God? It means that we daily have to burn the ships, that we've got to see, is there anything in my life that I need to, to rid myself of? God, it's keeping me from being the person. It's keeping me from living the life that God had in mind for me. Are there any areas that I need to stand alone? Places where he might be calling me in great faith and boldness to step out so that I could experience the life he has in mind for me. Church, I can't help but, but think that years from now, the stories that our children are gonna tell aren't just gonna be those of our mothers and fathers of the faith thousands of years ago but they're gonna be about their mom and their dad, their friend at church, the radical obedience they modeled when they were all in with God and the incredible thing that God did through it. Church, let's be a people that go all in with him, that give our all to seeking him, walking with him and being the people that he's created us to be. Let's pray. God, I thank you so much for this story. I praise you, God, for just your faithfulness in pursuing us. I thank you, God, for the prophet Elijah and how when your people were disobedient, when their convictions were compromised, when they looked more like the world that they lived in than the people that you had created them to be, even still, you would send Elijah to call them back, say, this is not what I had in mind for you. There's more for you. God, I pray for all those here today that are gonna go all in with you for the very first time. God, I know there's many that you are calling to stand alone, to step out that they might enter into a relationship with you, many for the first time, many for the hundredth time. God, would you stir our hearts? May we go all in with you today. In Jesus' name, amen.